I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole? Hmm? This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole Ancestral Service online, live, uh, in which we will be doing a week preparation work the week before, so that date will be Halloween 2011. Uh, also this weekend, if you any of you are out in New Jersey or the East Coast, I will be out at the Crucible Convention in Princeton, uh, New Jersey, and I will be teaching a class at Saturday at 6 p.m. on Quantum Sorcery. Uh, which will be a lot of fun. I've taught that class the last time I taught it was like five years ago. I love that stuff and I have lots of stories of isolation tanks. Lots of isolation tanks and the work I did there. So today I'm joined by my co-host, my awesome co-host Jason and probably the most old-school and hardcore and awesome festival organizer I ever met, Ian Corrigan, who also happens to be a high uh, druid of ADF, a poet, a beautiful songwriter, uh, one of the driving forces behind the Starwood Festival, which if you've listened to our show, we've talked a lot about uh, how much of an awesome time we had. And he's written, uh, I looked on Lulu and other places, at least 10 books um, on druidism, paganism, and really bringing the spirit art back to paganism. And... Uh, non-grimoire pagan evocation which is a topic that we touch on although we we don't except we touch on grimoire stuff sometimes but i want to welcome i want to welcome you into the show hey uh good to be here andrea thank you very much for having me well thank you for coming we appreciate it we, uh, i had to apologize a little for the people listening to the show that i couldn't get your show page done until uh, this afternoon, because my MBA's homework's taking so much time, so I apologize for that. Yeah, well, uh, that'll happen. I know. Um, 
That's all right. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I've enjoyed uh, been catching up on uh, some of your previous shows, and uh, you have a lot of interesting topics. Hopefully, uh, we can have some fun here this evening. I'm sure we will. Now, now, one of the things that we we met you in the context of, well, Star Wars, really. Yeah. <laughs> right. So. Yep. Uh, one of the that things. Was a happy coincidence. Uh, I know you had been on our uh, you had been on our medium length list for people we wanted to contact. In any case, and uh, I guess you moved into our uh, northern Ohio region here and uh, and contacted us, and uh, we were very happy to put you right on the bill. Uh, well, let me just say that was a wonderful, wonderful next. festival. If this was Starwood thirty one. So uh, we've been at it a while. Yeah, you you have. Uh, one of the interesting things is I always say, uh, if you speak my name too many times, I just appear. <laughs> I've heard that about some parents and <laughs> One of the things that I, I, I mean, yeah, we talked a little bit about Starwood being kind of a very relaxed, uh, mellow festival, but... You really were in on the beginning of the festival moment, the whole festival movement in a sort of, uh, in, in both the pagan and, and occult means. And maybe you could tell us about what that movement actually kind of relates to and how it started out. I can tell you a couple of stories. Um, it, you know, it's uh, that accident of birth. I was, uh, I was too young for Woodstock, but right on time to attend uh, some of the very first national pagan festivals. Um, uh, I began working with uh, the, the first circle of self-professed uh, 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 pagans and, uh, and occultists that I had found in my exploration in about 1977. And in 1979, I went for the first time up to um, the Chicago region for uh, an event that was called the Pan-Pagan Festival organized by uh, the Pagan Way out in Chicago. Pagan Way was one of the first public pagan temples uh, in North America, one of the first groups to actually come out from the initiatory and oath-bound living room religion of, uh, of British traditional Wicca and start doing public pagan ritual. And they had taken that a step further and started running the Pan-Pagan Festival, I went in 1979, had a great time, as did everyone else who was there, and went home and talked it up, as did everyone else who was there. And in 1980, uh, the Pan-Pagan Festival had over 500 uh, guests. It would take the festival movement another, um, I'm going to say, 10 years for festivals to become more than 500 people again. This was a very significant moment. Everyone from every coast in North America, everyone, not everyone, but so many names of people uh, still well-known. Um, the uh, uh, Gwydion Penvatawan uh, from uh, Forever Forests out in California, uh, the man who uh, did the first vinyl album of pagan music, uh, uh, songs, for the, one, songs for the Wheel. Um, that's not the correct name of his first uh, songs for the old religion my goodness my brain is failing me was there um organizers from chicago um 
Selena Fox with Jim Allen uh, was there, uh, who would go home from Pan Paganity to found the Pagan Spirit Gathering. Um, Andres Corbin and uh, Deirdre uh, and uh, the other folks from the Earth Spirit community in Boston were there. Uh, the um, uh, Rites of Spring Festival in Boston had been a city park event for two years before this. They went home and took it to the woods and made a camping event out of it. Uh, Terry the Wizard from Bloomington, Indiana was there. He went home and founded the Lothlorien um, uh, pagan land that's still in business running festivals. And uh, our gang from Cleveland, the Chameleon Club, went uh, to Pan Pagan 80 and we came home. And a bunch of us were um, SCA organizers from the 70s, uh, science fiction con organizers. We kind of knew what we were doing, so we had that, hey, kids, let's have a show sort of uh, feel about the whole thing. And uh, we decided to begin what became the Starwood Festival. Uh, the first Starwood Festival was in 1981 at Cooper's Lake, uh, the site that still hosts um, the war. The, the, the big, the Penzik War, the SCA's large gathering. But we were a little too strange for them, and, uh, and we've uh, gone from site to site, uh, and now we're uh, uh, comfortably ensconced uh, down at the Wisteria uh, Pagan Campground in southeastern Ohio. Uh, that's kind of that, uh, the Pan-Pagan 80 story. Everyone was there, and it was a, a kind of DNA moment uh, for the festival movement. If you want to start talking about what festivals mean, I can tell you what they did. What they did was to bring together groups that had been secret, separate, living room operations through the 1970s, often with a priest and or priestess telling their small cadre of students that they had the authentic ancient witchcraft stuff or Masonic Rosicrucian stuff, or whatever you like. Um, That's right, it, we are THE mystery school. We were, we are the inheritors of the real thing and not pretenders like all these other uh, folks you see in the literature. Uh, well, let me tell you, when you got about 10 of those groups together around a cooler of beer and a bonfire at festivals like Pan Pagan 80, those illusions were doomed to die. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, the, like one of the things. The, go ahead, Ian. The the ability the ability of small time um, lineage holders or lineage claimers uh, in the initiatory uh, uh, system that had been American paganism in the seventies to to uh, exert that illusion on their students evaporated um, well before the, the, the big round of publishing that gave everybody permission to be whatever they wanted. Um, it was happening around campfires at pagan festivals when people just quietly began to compare what their secret oathbound traditions really did. So you're an initiate, aren't you? Yeah, you're an initiate, aren't you? Yeah, all right, we better compare notes. And uh, they found all kinds of remarkable things. That's That's kind of it's kind of funny because it's almost like there was a gestalt along with the internet because people don't realize the internet actually stayed, started really early in the 80s. Um, yes. And that there was this gestalt. The BBS of, system. 
yep, BBS systems of starting to share information uh, across the, the campfire and then to the point that we raise now until we're sharing information ac across the world of different right. occult and metaphysical ideas. I often lament the fact sometimes and am encouraged by the fact that there really isn't any secrets anymore. Uh, <laughs> you got to make them up that day. You got to make them. Anyone. Right. You, know, you got to keep them in your head. And, and even that, maybe in 10 years, yeah. keeping them in your head won't be good enough either. Yeah. So Write them in a book, put them on the shelf, probably still safe. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Then you got to forget them. Yeah, so. if you type them, you're in trouble. Somebody will find them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting, because to put it into that context, you kind of see, uh, yeah, there was probably, if you look at the history in the 70s and a little bit early, a lot of oath-bound secret traditions and uh, various kind of, uh, well, that that's kind of why the anti-cult, uh, uh, which uh, comes from, uh, God, uh, Bonewits, basically anti-cult, things come out of is that you know that necessary control and we still hear you still occasionally well, hear horrible stories but a lot less common now that such a sharing can actually happen well the whole issue of mind control cults a term that was in use in those days was very hot in the 70s and it was new the American the American audience including the boomers who had you know Fizzily softened the edges of their reality with certain dietary supplements and rock and roll music <laughs> in the 60s and 70s. Um, we're, we're still getting used to Hare Krishnas and Scientologists and the OTO and witchcraft covens. I think people are a little more hard headed about that stuff at this point. It's a little harder to uh, love bomb people into coughing up their wallet than it was. Yes, 15, it is, but I will. It is, but I will say, Ian, here in beautiful Columbus, Ohio, we still have the Moonies. We still have the Moonies and the Hare Krishnas hanging out here. Well, the Hare Krishnas have become uh, an accepted American minority religion. I mean, they're not, you know, they don't go out and do the wacky stuff in airports to the extent they used to. They're not as big a street preacher as they used to be, at least in most towns. They're not in Cleveland, I know. Um, and they have they still have devotees all over North America, if uh, and, and temples and uh, and monasteries. If any given neo pagan group could do as well as uh, ISKCON has done, maybe without the arrests and uh, guru issues, <laughs> then uh, I think we'd be doing pretty well. <laughs> Where so far we have not had the Eastern religions difficulty with abuse of power among our leaders because we don't give our leaders the kind of power that Eastern systems do. No, it's uh, very try different some, when I read a book on... Some, you, can, you can make jokes about it, but try to get some pagans to kneel at some priestess's feet in... Uh, no, no, really, no. And actually, like, it's an interesting point because I actually read a book on on spiritual guruship and, and the kinds of things that gurus would put their... Um, their followers to test their faith and it's amazing none of it would fly in neo-paganism none of it would right. really fly in occultism at least not in american occultism or neo-paganism at all uh, yeah it like, is, uh, europe could be a different matter i am not i'm not uh, i'm not qualified to speak about it well i'll say this you some of the stuff you brought up to me andrea it made mr crowley look seem tame oh yeah there's stories in that book uh basically about you have a uh the 
the initiate put their hand down and you stab them with a fork. And if they don't flinch, then they truly are worthy of your teaching. I mean, crazy stuff. Like ancient, is this current or like uh, old-fashioned uh, masonry kind of stuff? It's considered current, actually. Money. It's, uh, of course, masonry, the, the, the core initiatory scare in masonry is very traditional. Throw them down a well, hit them with a mallet, uh, or at least pretend to. Yeah, yeah, no, it is uh, stories from most most recently, and definitely from, uh, but where where Westerners would go and guru with other people in the East. So it's actually, it really does highlight. It still happens nowadays for the Eastern religions in some and, cases. And you know, I think I, I think festivals have helped us avoid guruism. Um, the the festival uh, culture has not promoted, while some people would probably say it goes too far in promoting celebrity paganism, the fact is the celebrities are still usually camping right there with the ordinary people, eating at the same, you know, joints as the ordinary people, and uh, hanging around and, and being themselves in front of the plastic toilet in the morning <laughs> with everybody else. And... Uh, that really goes a long way, I think, to prevent uh, danger of guru worship. Um, but on the, the flip side of that, you could also say that, you know, just to be the devil's advocate, which sure, I often sure, am, uh, you could also say that in some cases the propagation of information and kind of uh, calming or uh, pedestrian access to information and celebrity takes the sacredness out of a lot of the rituals and a lot of the the importance of the rituals and the preparation for the rituals and the festivals lend itself in some one critique is that it lends itself more to the party atmosphere as opposed to a serious expression of spirituality it absolutely does um i actually unless you have unless you are crafting a festival event whose intention is focused spiritual work. If you're crafting a generic pagan event, you're crafting a, a pagan county fair, not a pagan religious retreat. There may be religious services at the county fair, but that's not, you know, that's not the point of being at the door. That's probably the best analogy I've heard for that, actually. Um, you know, Starwood, we say about Starwood that it's a menu-driven event. Um, you can pretty much have, we usually have about 150 spoken word programs at Starwood. And you can basically craft for yourself whatever experience you like within our menu. You know, you want a uh, you want an alternative politics and eco-awareness event we can keep you busy most of the week. You want an arts and handicrafts event, uh, we have that for you. You want a dance and rhythm event, uh, you can put that together out of our menu. And if you want a spiritual retreat, there's something in every workshop slot for you. Um, that's if you can, you know, get to a workshop after you've been up till four o'clock in the morning <laughs> at the fire. Uh, but don't be mistaken. You can get, you can get focused meditation and contemplation of the divine and the search for your true will in your living room. 
you can't get the experience you get at the fire at a festival in your living room. You gotta go out to the woods with the 500 other pagans and build the fire and get the drums going and take off your trousers and dance. And then, you know, I think in many ways that's the epitome moment of why festivals are better than hotel events. <laughs> Even though I'm going to a hotel event, like... <laughs> well, I like hotel events, I like the room service, I like the, I like the bathrooms. I like the showers, but uh, but you can't uh, you can't get that real moment. Um, to me, it's like a real moment of the witch's Sabbath. Uh, that real moment when um, the concerns of your common life are set aside in favor of. You know, in favor of whatever amount of transcendence you actually bring to the game with you, because uh, usually there's no organized transcendent uh, uh, process at a festival fire. However, uh, the good news is that hours of consistent rhythm, dancing, and song tend to induce those states automatically. <laughs> now, I, I have some experience with that from uh, my voodoo experience, but <laughs> right, right, it, it certainly does. Uh, right, and I think a lot of folks. I think a lot of folks generate what amount to mystical experiences for themselves in a festival context. Um, in those moments, uh, which could be mistaken for a party by people who expect their religion to look quiet or expect their spiritual practice to look inward turned and quiet. I mean, and that's not to say it's not a party. I, I doubt that any given uh, right to Dionysus uh, wasn't a party either. Now, if we did a rights to Dionysus at, at Starwood, that would be awesome. Well, the closest we've come as a direct approach um, was done by oh, Jason... Oh, Jason Mankey? Jason Mankey yeah. doing his uh, Dionysus right with uh, Morrison with the Jim Morrison content, yep. and that was a pretty pretty popular uh, that was a pretty popular midnight ritual at Starwood for several years. Um, but I would be glad to see something a little more cloud or a lot more classical, because of course I'm interested in efforts to actually reconstruct the forms of ancient paganism. That's um, uh, kind of the you know, Starwood for me is a, a once-a-year um, big project that I've done these many years, but my regular spiritual practice and public work uh, is really much more Apollonian than that. <laughs> it's really much more about, uh, about working as a fire priest at the altar, making offerings, and getting a good blessing for the public in the context of our quote-unquote druidic rituals in, uh, in Arnry Fan. ADF, the, the group that I work in. And let, let's talk about that a little, because that's another religion that many people have a lot of misconception about. What is Judaism? What is ADF? How do you guys... What do you guys believe? Yeah, well, what is Druidism is a long question. I'll That's probably true. Short answer. Oh, I'm gonna, we'll, give you, we'll give you three layers of answer, and even that I'm going to keep short. First, there's ancient Druids. The ancient Druids were the priest and intellectual class of the people they call the Celts. 
Celts were people in Gaul and Ireland and uh, uh, Britain uh, in, say, 500 B.C. through 500 A.D., and there's still Celts around, um, who traded and competed with the Greeks and Romans and had a pretty high-level Iron Age civilization, though they didn't build in stone the way the Greeks and Romans did, so they didn't leave the same kind of remains. But their uh, priest class was referred to as the Druids, and they were in charge of Celtic pagan religion, at least at the, the formal end. Um, the Druids pass away with the uh, arrival of Christianity, as did all the pagan priesthoods eventually. And uh, the first Druid revival that a lot of people, if you run into people who call themselves Druids now, a lot of folks are still participating in the, the inheritance of the first Druid revival that starts in about the 1700s in England. Um, when, when the English were starting to notice uh, material in the classical record about their noble ancestors, the Celts, and starting to realize that the Brits hadn't been, you know, eating rocks and wearing live animals before the Romans got there. Uh, that they had a civilization of their own, uh, and when they discovered that, um, they discovered the Druids, these 17th century Masonic Englishmen and Welshmen, and they started to create new ceremonies and new ritual forms, pretty much based on masonry, although with some Celtic content, and called it... Oh, we just lost uh, Ian. So hopefully he or, or Jason, are you still there, Ian? Jason, I'm I'm still here, and I believe that we can reconnect to Ian. Yeah. Go ahead and give him a buzz back. Sorry about that. All technical problems here. Um, let me uh, try to call him again. All right, here we go. Sorry about that, everyone. Hey, just. Hey, hello. Oh, sorry about that. We lost That's you. We right. dropped the line. Sorry about the that to the audience. The miracle of modern technology. Uh, that's all right. What do you want for nothing? I know. I mean, well, <laughs> we'll see how You're not, 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 we'll see how long Skype is for nothing, right? Now that Microsoft bought them out, right? Um, but uh, right, you're right. So, uh, so uh, that for the first round of British Druid revival, and in fact, the single largest modern druid organization is called the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids um, out, of, uh, out of the UK, and uh, they still continue an inheritance from those uh, um, post-Masonic uh, British druids, although now they're kind of post-Wiccan English druids. Um, and the third strain, or kind of layer in the history of druidism that brings you up to what we do, started here in North America with a pretty good story. Um, at a place called called Carlton College um, in in Minnesota, I believe, uh, where back in 1962 or so they had a chapel requirement, and every uh, undergraduate was required to attend weekly chapel. Well, some of the lads didn't think that was a good idea, so they decided they would found a religion. Um, call it reformed druidry uh, because they had given up human sacrifice, hence the reform, and uh, go to the top of the hill on campus and toast the gods with Irish whiskey, and that would fulfill their chapel requirement. Um, and they actually let them get away with it, and what started as a joke 
became in time and with some scholastic effort uh, a heartfelt practice. And that gang, the Reformed Druids of North America, is still in our DNA, is still in business uh, in a number of groves around the country. Um, and uh, into that scene came a young occultist uh, in the uh, late 60s uh, named Isaac Bonowitz. Uh, who would later become famous for getting the first degree uh, in uh, magic and, and thaumaturgy uh, from the University of uh, California at Berkeley, um, and incidentally the last yeah. degree the university has. <laughs> I was thinking, uh, <laughs> I myself would love to get that degree. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I don't think anymore. you can get that now. Uh, <laughs> they got took so much flack, they got made fun of so much for letting Isaac get it on an independent study <laughs> that they said it would never happen again. Oh, bummer. Um, and uh, uh, and Isaac was already a self-aware pagan, whereas these folks in the RDNA were kind of philosophical agnostics and general scoffers. Um, so Isaac fit in fairly well with them, pushed them towards neo-paganism, and after, after several fart, false starts, in 1983 at Samhain, uh Isaac and a few friends uh, proclaimed uh, the creation of uh, Arnriach Fan, an Irish phrase that means our own druidry, or our kind of druidry, if you will, um, with the intention of creating a new uh, pagan uh, religious system from the ground up based on the best scholarship available um, at the time, and even today, now that we there's better scholarship available than there was in 1983, and uh, devoted also to the creation of a network of uh, public uh, congregations of paganism throughout North America. Um, Arnry Arfein is still in business. Uh, what's this then? 27 years later, give or take, um, with um, three or four dozen local congregations around North America. Uh, we maintain a paid membership of around 1,500 pagans at this point. Um, we operate uh, uh, several levels of training system, um, and uh, we believe we're fulfilling Isaac's goals. Now you ask, what do we believe? That's uh, the, the, the main thing we believe is that when you offer to the gods and spirits, they will bless you in turn. From there, everything else is detail. Fair enough. And there's plenty of detail. <laughs> we have... Uh, you have about ten books worth of detail. Well, so I do, and, and those aren't all directly about Druidry. My most important book on, on the system of Druidry that ADF practices, and really on a system of occultism built around our Druidry, uh, is called Sacred Fire Holy Well, uh, a Druid's grimoire, and it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's out from ADF Publishing, as opposed to just published by me. I actually like self-publishing, um, but uh, uh, Sacred Fire Holy Well is out from ADF Publishing and is available on Amazon.com. And, and we have that. A, we actually have that linked into uh, the show page for today for good. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. So you can just click there if you go to Deeper that's Down the Rabbit a, Hole. Uh, that's actually a fairly um, complete review of uh, uh, Gaelic mythology, uh, rituals uh, for the, uh, the Celtic seasonal cycle, and then on into uh, uh, personal magical and uh, spellbinding rites. 
uh, so it's a fairly complete uh, uh, introduction uh, based on a, 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 what amounts to a new and uniquely non-Wiccan, non-Masonic ritual system based on our understanding of what ancient Indo-European fire sacrifice might have looked like. So um, when you say the gods and the spirits, Ian, yes. does this mean that the, the ADF Druidry has a select pantheon of gods they work with? No. Um, ADF Druidry encourages individual members to choose uh, one of the ancient cultures of the Indo-European peoples and work with it. Most of us, in because we call ourselves Druids, it's still fair to say that most of us are uh, interested in Celtic um, paganism. And even there, we have a lot of folks who pursue the Gaelic pantheon, a number of folks who pursue the what you might call the British or Welsh pantheon, and even a few folks who make an effort to pursue the Gaulish pantheon, though there we have only images and no stories. Um, in order to assemble a usable Celtic pantheon, you actually have to look at elements from all three of those places, no matter which one you're focused on. But we okay. also have a number of folks doing Norse paganism inside our ADF uh, context, and uh, a smaller minority even doing uh, doing Hellenic paganism, uh, Greek or Greco-Roman paganism. Um, so a little funny, it makes us end up with absurd turns of phrase, phrase like Greek druid, but we just forgive ourselves. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You are we not bound by the demon of consistency. Well, you know, we can't help it. Isaac decided to call the system Druidism, and we're kind of stuck with it at this point. It's on all the letterheads. Yeah, what can you do, right? <laughs> now, one of the things is that um, I know I know from uh, some other Druids that uh, there's definitely uh, a lot of neo-paganism uh, tends to move towards what we what I would call, from a chaos magic point of view, an energy model of magic. However, uh, in, in talking and listening to you on the show, it seems like uh, paying the spirits it suggests a reconstruction of what would be a spirit and mythology-based model of magic. Maybe you could talk uh, about that for a second. You bet. Um, the... And where to start? Um, the beginning. <laughs> in, in ADF, we talk about the spirits in three great categories that we know are kind of artificial, but they help us to think straight, we hope. And we talk about the gods, um, the ancestors, or the dead, broadly, um, and the land spirits, or the nature spirits. Um, between those three categories, we hope we have everyone covered. We know they're not. We know they're not hard and fast categories. One man's ancestor is another man's god, and vice versa. Uh, one try, you know, a, a powerful mountain spirit is indistinguishable from a god, and uh, a king may go into a mound and uh, become functionally a land spirit in time. Uh, so these are not hard and fast categories, but we use those categories in our rituals to make sure that everyone gets their due sacrifice, and we don't have what we sometimes call the thirteenth fairy problem. Um, and the longer, what is the thirteen fairy problem? 
the 13th fairy problem? Remember your fairy tales. Who was the 13th fairy? The one who caused the problems. The one who, uh, the one, the one who cursed Sleeping Beauty, I believe. No? Gotcha. Cinderella? No. Who pricked their finger on a, spin on a, on a oh. spinning wheel? Sleeping Beauty. The twelve, the, the the twelve fairy godmothers come and uh, um, give her the their various gifts and blessings, and the thirteenth fairy who wasn't invited shows up and gives her a curse. So, yeah, in order gosh, to make yeah. sure everyone gets their invitation and their bit of ale and uh, and fire, uh, we use those three categories. And you know, when we began doing that kind of ritual twenty five years ago, I had been working as a working my spiritual path as a traditional uh, Wiccan or traditional witch. The, those terms were less distinct in those days than they are now. Um, and there were some things that I thought in the end were missing that became fulfilled in the form of ritual that we developed in ADF. One of the most notable of those was the giving of physical offerings. Uh, in in traditional Wicca, you know, you occasionally spill wine, a little a little libation for the gods, or you burn a candle, or you put some herbs in the fire. But consciously choosing to set the feast for the gods and spirits seemed to me to uh, kind of cross some eyes and dot some T's <laughs> that uh, had uh, had had not been. Uh, look to in in the the Wiccan ceremonial that I uh, had grown up with up to then, um, and I think as a result of uh, what did it take for us ten or fifteen years of plodding along at least uh, monthly and uh, uh, with the eight high days every year making our offering to the gods and spirits. Well, eventually the gods and spirits will begin to respond, even to TV soaked Westerners like us. And they did. Uh, people started to, as it were, dream the dreams and have the inspirations and begin to create rituals, for instance, that were no longer focused only on major deities. But we began to, to focus rituals and sacrifices on the ancestors themselves and on the land spirits themselves uh, and, and to seek to have communion and blessing with them. And it's a short hop, in my opinion, from religious communion uh, to magical conversation. So let me, it, go ahead. let me say this, okay, would you say that the reaching out toward these god forms, these spirits, in a way, it, it was a form of evocation. It, it took preparation and time, and then you got an answer back, tangibly. Well, it's a form of I, you know, I'd use the term, I'd use the term invocation for the deities, uh, mostly out of a kind of knee-jerk respect for an antique magical vocabulary. But uh, um, I don't use the term evoke to refer to deities because I don't ever intend to make them come and stand in front of me and answer questions. Okay. Um, that's not how I approach the great eternal beings that manage the cosmos and 
uh, are, are willing to respond to my invocations in that way. Okay. I will ask them. I will ask them to send me their butler. <laughs> see, see, I'm, I'm used to and all... have him stand and have him stand in front of me and answer questions. <laughs> about... Usually, I'm used to the voodoo rituals, and I get possessed and answer the questions. <laughs> well, we haven't gone. We have not gone a possession route yet. Um, I, I think it's coming, uh, actually, and I can tell you a little bit. There is another magician on the other uh, out in New Jersey uh, in ADF that worked quite a lot with deity possession. Uh, using the Celtic deities, and ended up with a kind of mixed result. Uh, and that would be a long story here. I doubt we have. Let me tell you a different story. Okay. Um, uh, my personal magical path began with Western ceremonial down and dirty grimoire magic. Some of the first the ritual that I ever did that wasn't uh, that wasn't me reading Mastering Witchcraft, which wasn't bad. I got somewhere with that. But <laughs> some of the first higher order stuff that I did was Lesser Key of Solomon stuff with a circle in college. I've always been fascinated by grammaric evocation and have one of my little disappointments in life is that I don't have time to do my three or five favorite systems as well as I would like to. Oh, you know ain't that the truth? Well, and Andrea, you're, you know, you started early and you're taking a shot at it. You're doing voodoo and uh, tantra and, uh, uh, and other such things. Uh, but, spirits uh, really like me a lot. <laughs> I have narrowed my work down to this. Uh, I have narrowed my work down to this druidic thing, and so um, as part of my project, as it were, and really it's kind of a twenty-year chaos magic project of sinking into this belief system. Oh, sure. So long term, but it's a long-term project. It's not. It's not belief hopping. It's a long-term sink in. Um, as, as part of that project, I have tried to extract what I understand as the basic principles of grimoire evocation, even going back to the Greco-Egyptian papyri, and apply those principles to the ritual system that I'm operating and the gods that I'm working with and the categories of spirits that I regularly offer to. Um, it took me a while. It took me. I'm, it's fair to say that while I was duffing around with this stuff at my own shrines and doing my own magic extempore around it for many years, it took me a while to get to the point where I thought I could systematize it. And just this past summer, I did my first real experiment in what you might call group evocation. Um, I've done various. Um, festival rituals over the years and Andrea I have over the years tried to do as I know you do but I have tried to do serious magical art at festivals when I can manage it I can't manage it at Starwood because I'm an organizer yeah, yeah well I since just, I'm not an I organizer can't, I, I can't get... muster the brain cells and and the and the juice here at my uh, increasing age. Uh, since, uh, since, <laughs> since I'm not an organizer, I got to do 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 one. I think yeah. I think every night we were out doing like, I mean hardcore fairy magic every single night. It was uh, serious. So. A great place for it. Oh, we had fun. <laughs> I mean, oh so, yes, we did. And then then the Ganesh ritual, which I worked hard at, and yes, have did. the have the scratches and cuts to that. prove prove it. <laughs> so, um, so I had look- I had go ahead. Oh, let's just let's just take a brief look at some evolution here. 
So you began early on with, say, the Aleister Crowley Mathers version of the Lesser Key of Solomon. Yeah, the and, work we were doing in college, we were certainly doing straight out of the little black cover uh, Lesser Key of Solomon. Sure. So you you began with the perspective of saying maybe the, the Secret of Magic. So you began with the perspective of say the invocation of the Bornless One and make all spirits subject unto me and that kind oh, of. Oh no, we didn't use the Bornless ritual. Um, we did. Um, uh, it, it might be more accurate to say that we were working out of secret lore of magic. Okay. Um, to be to be honest, uh, with Crowley kind of off to one side as a as another source, like none of us knew none of us knew the first thing about Anakian. Um, you know, really, none of us knew anything about Golden Dawn magic. Uh, we knew at that point we knew Neoplatonism because we were in college, <laughs> and we knew Neo-Pagan magic because we'd done some early witchcraft that kind of stuff. And we were interested in trying this uh, this ritual system from the grimoires, which we were more than willing to kind of fiddle with and do substitutions and uh, sure. um, uh, because we we weren't dogmatists of any kind even then. So uh, uh, we uh, so so we weren't used. So we were doing our personal devotions as preliminary invocations and not the bornless ritual and not okay. following Crowley's rubric so much as our own. We had a, the, the guy, uh, I was not the magister of that circle. We had a guy who was the magister of that circle, uh, 10 years older than us undergrads, who was, uh, who was uh, doing the synthesizing. Mm. And what kind of results were you achieving back then? Well, let's see, my favorite story. We, I think we did a total of three evocations. Um, uh, my favorite story is concerns a friend of ours who was considering, um, and this was let's say 1975 or six, uh, who was considering going uh, to Israel to make himself uh, a warrior in the affairs over there. Uh, young uh, uh, six four Sabra kid um, uh, would be Sabra, truth to say. And he wanted a sword as a talisman. He enchanted as we all were with Michael Moorcock and various uh, other fantasists of the period. He wanted a demon in a sword that he could take with him uh, to who, Israel. Who doesn't? Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, certainly what what 22-year-old about to be in the MCA in sort of guy does not want a demon in a sword. Um, so we undertook to, uh, be, because we were already in the SCA at that point and had sword-making skills, uh, we undertook to prepare for him a custom, he purchased a blade and uh, our craft types did the custom hilt, etc. for him, and we affixed the copper seal of the spirit who he had chosen by uh, reviewing the catalog of spirits. Uh, fixed the copper seal to both sides of the of the blade, um, and did the evocation and asked uh, the uh, spirit uh, to uh, empower the sword as a a pact token uh, for this uh, for this fellow. Well, his and and uh, you know without going into our journals, we had. Uh, 
um, we had a series of interestingly similar visions around it. Excellent. Quite enough to make me convinced at that point that um, we had had uh, an interesting magical event. Um, you know, no, no claps of thunder and earthquakes and uh, uh, Joe Lasuski style uh, phenomena necessarily, but uh, we we had uh, uh, enough um, coherence in the in the visions between the four or five operatives. I think we had five operatives in the circle um, that uh, that we were pretty convinced. Our friend's um, ownership of that sword lasted about three days. Oh, wow. What happened? Uh, he came back with tales of dreams and forebodings um, and said, eh, put it back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <sighs> and so we did. <laughs> We once again evoked uh, the same spirit and uh, uh, let him off the hook. Uh, destroyed the sword and the uh, dreams and uh, forebodings uh, feast um, on cue and on we all went. So that's my, that's my best story out of our limited uh, catalog of Solomonic efforts in college. So now, fast forward, you did your first pagan group evocation here recently. Yes, in which I uh, intended to evoke a... If you're familiar with the greater key of Solomon, you'll know that in the, that the, the first major operation in the greater key of Solomon is the evocation of a crowd of spirits out of whom you seek allies. Nice. Um, you know, it it precedes the idea, it precedes the catalog of spirits, it precedes the Libra Spiritum. Um, you know, you get a Libra Spiritum by doing this um, prospecting ritual in the front end of the greater key and, uh, you know, seeing what spirits will ally with you. I've used that model a couple of times in a pagan context, and in this case, um, finally getting it all scripted and ready to go, uh, we decided, I decided for safety's sake, to evoke beings who are, as I might say, of the court of the goddess Bridget. Familiar with the goddess Bridget from Irish lore? Ooh, a little well, bit. A little Her bit. name is given to the holiday of Imbolg, of the Candlemas holiday sometimes. She's a goddess both of hearth and nurturance of children, but she's also a goddess of inspiration for artists. She's the goddess of poetry, smithcraft, and healing. Uh, kind of, she, she's not unlike Saraswati. Um, uh, right down to being uh, connected to a river. See, uh, so be, because of your wife, we got to meet Bridget really up a close and personal at Starwood. <laughs> when she invoked her for our five-minute invocation class. Ah, very good. See, we <laughs> felt no her. Surprise. It was really warm. Really no, that's warm. No, that's no surprise. Uh, it was a long time devotee of breeze. So, uh, as, as you say her name, and as we say her name in Irish. Um, so, we, uh, so, so, the form of the ritual was to do a major sacrificial invocation, as I would say, of Bridget. Um, 
and then ask her to send her, um, if I may use the Greek word, daimons, her 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 agents, her her active uh, some of the members of her court, and we there, there's a process in the script through which you make sure that the ones who actually stay to talk to you are the ones who are willing to work with you in safety, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And through trance induction in the pretty experienced audience there at our event, um, I was able to get the members of the uh, I hate to use the term audience, you understand, of the company, of the, the gathered uh, operators, um, to basically meet and speak out loud their, the names and descriptions and powers of these spirits as they were meeting them in their vision. And they were noted down by a scribe at the right, and we're in the process of uh, cataloging them devising sigils for them with uh, an Irish sigil-making system that's in Sacred Fire Holy Well, incidentally. And um, we will then have what amounts to a small grimoire of, I believe it came out to 16 spirits, uh, whose names and sigils we gained uh, through this uh, prospecting rite. And because she's a a gentle and nurturing goddess, we got uh, spirits who are about... uh, um, artisanry and the power of inspiration and healing and you know there are a number of gods who if you ask to meet their diamonds you could meet some rather more chancy fellows yeah that's usually like you know well, <laughs> they like, come around like these diamonds, of, <laughs> diamonds of Dionysus are beings like Menads and Satyroi and uh, uh, that sort of thing um, so that would be another story in fact and for the clarification of our audience, that is yeah. the, I believe, Greek word for spirit as opposed to demon. Yeah, D-A-E-M-O-N or D-A-I-M-O-N, best translated a spirit, yes. Yes. Um, and it's not really opposed to angel. Angel means, angelos means a messenger. Daimon just means an active power. Yes. doesn't imply messenger or servant in the same way that angelos does. We're about to run out of time. Jeff. We are. We are. We got about two minutes left, so we because we're gonna actually end the show today. Because one of Ian's hidden talents is he's a poet and songwriter. So we're gonna <laughs> actually uh, end the show with one of his songs, which is a it's called the Death Song, but it's much much more beautiful as truly really a bardic recitation. Uh, I do I do actual songs. Um, it may be what I'm most famous for. People may know me as the author of the chant Hoof and Horn. Uh, people may know that chant, you know, hoof and horn, hoof and horn, that one. A um, couple of other pagan chants that still circulate. I have a song, although not my performance of it, on the best of pagan song from Serpentine Records before they went away. There you go. There you go. Um, I've been singing on pagan stages, certainly for that same 30-some years. Indeed. Well, next time we're going to have to have you bring some songs on. Yeah, yeah. Well, show, maybe, next bring time, some... maybe next time I'll have an EP or some crap. I'm way behind. Oh, you should have an EP already. Uh, you've been doing begging songs. Been... I'm way behind. Uh, just go just go put it out there, man. Put it on iTunes. I know. And then people... Uh, next time we'll just have you play live when we're, you know, get you on the show for Starwood when we're out there. So. Oh, yeah. Well, we can have live music. Uh, that would be great. The idea of doing uh, Down the Rabbit Hole... Uh, 
live from the Starwood stage would be a laugh riot. So oh, we're going. Uh, you know, we're going to make it happen. We'll yeah, make it happen, yeah. right, Jason? Tune in, tune in next July twenty third ish out there in the Internet Radio Land. Yeah, hopefully I won't well, do, do another ritual where I have to sit in the fire for <laughs> three hours. Only if, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. Let me know. I, I didn't quite gather that from your descriptions when I said, oh, it'd be good to have him do this one. So, uh, oh, only no, it was good. I got, a, I got a lot out of it, by, good, personally, good. myself. Well, and I know, I know the guests got a lot out of it. Uh, um, I know they did because I heard great reviews. So, with about one minute before we play your song... Well, Maybe you'd like to give out some web pages and how uh, people well, can contact course, you. I always want to plug our uh, national pagan organization, Arnry Fan. That one's real easy. It is adf.org. Um, even the even outside of the extensive members pages, there's a lot to look at for the general public. Uh, you can see our local grove uh, here in Greater Cleveland at Stone Creed. One word: S T O N E C R E E D. StoneCreed.org. Lots of uh, good pictures and a big pile of rituals in there. Um, and, of course, you can uh, web search uh, Ian Corrigan uh, to get to our, or search me on uh, lulu.com uh, or I think maybe use the link on, uh, on the show page. Yep, there will be a link to uh, his Lulu page right after the show. So I'll get that up. Um, and to, get my, uh, to get my actual material on uh, pagan evocation and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, thank you all for listening, and thank you guys very much for having me. Oh, well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you, well. and good night. And with that, we're going to end the show with his actual death song, which is a beautiful... Uh, Falling to Fall song, actually. Thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next week. The Death Song Go home this night to your home of winter, to your home of fall, of spring, of summer. You go home this night to the turning house, to your pleasant rest in the house of joy. Rest you, rest, and away with sorrow. Rest this night in the mother's breast. Rest you, rest, and away with sorrow. Rest, O oh beloved, with the mother's kiss. In the many-colored land, in the land of the dead, in the plain of joy, in the land beneath the wave, in the land of youth, in the land of the living, in the revolving castle, the house of dawn. Rest in seven lights, beloved. Rest in seven joys, beloved. Rest in seven sleeps, beloved, in the grove of the cauldron, the Morrigan's shrine. The shade of death is on your face, beloved, but the cauldron of rebirth awaits you. The threefold turning of your fate when your rest has given you your peace. So rest in the calm of all calms. Rest in the wisdom of all wisdom. 
Rest in the love of all loves. Rest in the Lord of life and death. Rest in the Lady of life and death. Till the season of turning. Till the time of the returning. Till the mystery of the cauldron.